0: Um, the barrio assemblies and these like you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Matt Bernico. I teach media studies at Greenville University in Greenville, Illinois.
1: I'm Dean Detloff. I'm a PhD student at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto. And hey, you know what? I didn't even plan on this, but I just turned 29 because it's midnight, my birthday.
0: Oh, hey, happy birthday. What are, your, what are your birthday resolutions?
1: Oh, my gosh. I hadn't even been thinking about this all year. I had a whole year to think about it. Oh, no. Um, Be it resolved that in a year I will turn thirty years old. That's one. That's good one. I'm gonna get to thirty by the end of this year. You can do it. I can do it. I got a haircut today. I got a birthday haircut, and I think that the last haircut I got was about a year ago. So
0: I was was pretty. I was there for it. I think wasn't I?
1: Yeah, I think that's right. Or shortly thereafter.
0: Yeah, I remember being with you, and you went to get a haircut.
1: Yeah, yep. So there you go. Um that's the big milestone. Already already uh, on the right path, I think.
0: Yeah, get that traditional birthday haircut. Um you're gonna plan. you got the big plan to turn thirty in another year. That's good.
1: Yeah, I've got my whole end of my twenties ahead of me here.
0: <laughs> um well I turned I turned thirty last year. <laughs> no- it doesn't feel very it doesn't feel very different. I think that like once you turn 25, you're just kind of 25 mentally forever. And physically yeah, though, I've, you get worse. Yeah, I feel that
1: way. Yeah, that's right. My bones already hurt, so I feel fine about that. Oh um, yeah.
0: Oh yeah, that's you're going to get more of it. It's going to be great. You're going to love it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. My bones hurt, my blood hurts, my sometimes my brain hurts. Mm-hmm. Uh Yeah, I've, I mean the the new thing in my dumb old Uh, cranky body is uh sometimes i just get headaches for no good reason so you know i don't know there there are so many worse things that could have have happened to me by the time i got here i feel pretty good about it
0: yeah well good (laughs) okay so apart from dean's big birthday news uh there's some other really big news uh this week about ernesto cardinal dean do you want to as the birthday boy (laughs) do you want to tell us about it
1: yeah sure uh i will save you from from uh, being a Protestant having to say anything about this whole situation. Thank you. Uh, (laughs) So Cardinal, yeah, is in the news. That's right. Um, He's in the news because he was recently rehabilitated by Pope Francis. Uh, And I'll say a little bit about that. So we decided to do an episode on Ernesto Cardinal in light of this event, which is more significant than I think a lot of people realize, both people on the left and people in the Christian community Uh, It's a really huge deal that you might kind of miss just by seeing, like, a picture of, you know, an old man, like, getting, uh, hanging out with a cardinal or something. (laughs) There's a lot more going on. So, here's a little bit of background. So, in 1984, Ernesto Cardinal got suspended from ministry as a Catholic priest by Pope John Paul II. uh, Because Cardinal joined the revolutionary Sandinista government in Nicaragua. He was the minister of culture for the government there. And on February 17th, so last Sunday, his suspension was lifted or removed by Pope Francis. So that like might sound like some boring Catholic legal problem, and in some ways it is, but it's actually also very important. Uh, and this is in a couple of ways. So symbolically, it's important because it means that there's one more radical priest that Pope Francis decided to welcome back into the Catholic mainstream. It's not like Cardinal was excommunicated, but he was definitely pushed to the fringe. Uh, And that's along with like people like Gustavo Gutierrez or Leonardo Boff, like Francis is really um, bringing these people in as like uh, valuable dialogue partners in the church instead of kind of keeping them at bay, which is what had happened in the past. And it also matters spiritually, I think, because Father Cardinal is now able to celebrate mass as a priest and live out his priestly vocation the way that he was meant to. Uh, even though it sucks that he's 94 years old and had to wait so long it's still very important if you're a Catholic priest to be able to do that. So all that to say it is a really big deal because basically what this event matter what this event means in particular this specific sort of moment is that Pope Francis is recognizing that a person who was a, a real revolutionary uh, and part of a real revolutionary government is welcome as a full, priestly member of the church which is a big deal if you're a catholic but also if you're just a christian who is interested in how uh christians participate in leftist projects and and in revolutionary projects
0: yeah it is super interesting it's hard for me uh protestant to really get my mind around what exactly is happening here when the when the big news dropped about uh, ernesto cardinal um it was cool like i remember thinking like oh cool something happened (laughs) <laughs> with him, and then like I saw all the all these tradcats who were just like losing their mind about it, and I had no idea what was going on. It's kind of like um, uh, it's kind of like a reverse Big Brother kind of situation, you know? Like uh, Pope John Paul <laughs> evicted Cardinal from the house, but now uh, he's back. He's getting back in the house. He won the battle back. That's he, right. He the power of veto just really kicked in here or something. <laughs>
1: yeah, just a really, really long time on the block. Didn't get evicted at the end. <laughs> it's good. Wow. Um
0: love that big yeah. brother. <laughs>
1: here's a here's a little bit more like boring uh details to it. So okay. When he was removed from ministry by Pope John Paul II, the thing that was cited by the Pope at that point was a clause in the uh Catholic Church that says that priests can't can't be um well, to paraphrase it, they can't be, like, civil authorities or or governmental agents. That's, like, a thing they're not supposed to do. And, like, in fairness to the Pope, that is exactly what Ernesto Cardinal decided to do. So, like, he did break the rule. But uh, it's not, I mean, there's all kinds of ways of interpreting exactly how you should respond to that. And eventually he did step down from uh, being a minister of culture for a number of reasons. Uh, a lot of political reasons not uh, sort of related to him being... Catholic priest. Um, but he was never returned to ministry after that or anything. Uh, and his brother was also uh, similarly reprimanded, but he stepped down earlier and had a different kind of situation. So, anyway, that's kind of more of the like boring legal mumbo jumbo that is all sort of in the past now, anyway.
0: Yeah, that's super interesting. There's not even anything like analogous in Protestantism, really. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no one gets in trouble for anything. Uh, the only thing that could happen is that you get like kicked out of your church because you're too bad of a person or something um (laughs) well cool yeah i mean we've talked about father cardinal in the past um especially for our christmas episode the first christmas episode not the most recent one and then we did another one a while back too just about the gospel in solentaname um that's a book that cardinal edited uh where he transcribed the conversations that he and the catholic peasants um had around different stories in the bible um, so this week we decided to dive into his life a little bit more. Not maybe focus on the Gospel in and Solentaname, and but focus uh, like on kind of like what he was about as a person, um, and get into a little bit of his biography. Uh, Father Cardinal wrote a ton of really amazing poetry books, like so many. We were trying, to, we were just like kind of looking through them before we got started, and there's a gazillion of them. Uh, there's even one about. They're pretty wild. Yeah, they are wild. There's one about UFOs and like indigenous culture, <laughs> and I want to read that one. A lot, actually. (laughs) Um, The problem with all the poetry books, though, is that Dean and I don't know anything about poetry, and I think that we're not people who are well-suited to comment on it. Um, So we're going to save everyone that pain. Um, So instead, (laughs) we just found these two articles that try to contextualize his life a little bit and uh, say something interesting about him that maybe we didn't know. Um, So like Dorothy Day, he also had a Cuba blog. Uh, He had a book, and he talks about his trip to Cuba. And we'll, like, maybe we'll come back around to that in the future. But we just did the Dorothy Day Cuba blog, and his is actually not all that different. So um, we thought we would bracket that for a bit.
1: Yeah. Uh, so we should say up front, I guess, what the two articles are and what we're going to uh, pull out of them. So one is an article called uh, Ernesto Cardinal and the Nicaraguan Revolution from Theological Theory to Revolutionary Praxis. It's by a guy named Rudolf J. Siebert. And it is from 1980, which is really important um, because that is like at the height of sort of the uh, Sandinista experiment. Um, So that's a really interesting article. And it kind of gives you a a, a flavor of like what Cardinal was communicating as a person, um, like in his very life, kind of the things that he was getting people to think about. And the other is an article called War in Paradise. Solon and the Santanisa Revolution. And this is from 2015. It's actually in a journal called Visual Studies, which is great because it's sort of a a look more at, like, the arts community out of which Cardinal um, emerged and also the one that he, like, really helped to sort of nurture – uh, and you can kind of see that arts community as his training ground for what he would end up doing in the Sandinista government, which is really radical and, and, and amazing. Uh, so anyway, those are the two articles. And we will we'll work through first a little bit from the, the Siebert article on Cardinal's life and then talk a little bit more about the art scene.
0: Yeah, sounds good. So if you don't know anything about Ernesto Cardinal, let me tell you some things. Here are some things. He's born in Granada <laughs> in 1925. He spent most of the 1940s traveling around uh, to Mexico and U.S. and throughout Europe. In 1950, he came back to Nicaragua and four years later uh, was part of a failed coup against the Somoza dictatorship. Somoza is the dictator that um, that they overthrew later uh, during the Sandinista Revolution. So that's a name we'll say a few times. So just he's the bad guy. Um, but after the <laughs> coup, the first coup failed, he moved to Kentucky, of all places, and and uh, lived in the same Trappist monastery as Thomas Merton in 1957. So that's pretty weird. <laughs> One of those things, uh, again, where I'm amazed that people are alive at the same time. Um, a couple years later, though, he studied theology in Mexico and eventually came back to Nicaragua, where he was ordained as a priest in 1965. In Sontaname, uh, which is a chain of islands, an archipelago in Nicaragua, um, he was a leader in a radical arts community um, that's basically just a commune, honestly, uh, that was focused on art. And uh, he also worked with leftists to ferment a revolution, um, and kind of give give that revolution some like religious energy, serving as like a priest in that community. In 1977, his community was brutally attacked, and he fled to Costa Rica. But after the success of the Sandinista Revolution, he was named the Minister of Culture in the Revolutionary Government, um, which is kind of why John Paul II got so mad in the first place.
1: Yeah, that's good. That's a good lightning, <laughs> lightning round of facts about Ernesto Cardinal.
0: All of the facts you need to know.
1: <laughs> uh, side note, I just want to say this because I heard this today from Dave McKee, the Ontario leader of the Communist Party of Canada. Uh, we were talking about this uh, happening, and he referred to uh, Pope John Paul II as J2P2, and uh, <laughs> it made me laugh very hard. So anyway, you, you can all have that one for free, courtesy of Dave McKee. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's pretty good. <laughs> Uh well, so if you need a quick refresher in your brain, uh, the Gospel in Sontename is a really dope book, and it's four volumes. And for some reason, no one on the internet can seem to find any of them but the first one. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. We there's like not a good PDF of them all, but there is a PDF of volume one at least. And we've talked about it on the show a few times. It's a pretty cool book. Um, what I like about the book so much is that it's really just like the transcriptions of, um. Yeah, these like leftist farmers in uh in Nicaragua and just talking about what Bible verses might mean and all these really funny characters kind of emerge out from them. Um that they all have sort of these like reoccurring themes that they always will bring up and uh they're all really nice and it's a good book. It's a it's a cool book where you get to read um you know, you read the scripture along with people that you um I mean, most United States uh and North American Christians would never get to read the uh, scripture with. So there you go. Um yeah, that's the Gospel in Taname. Go check it out if you've never read it. Go listen to our episode about it. It's it's pretty good.
1: It is pretty good. It's a really neat book, too, because, well, two things that are cool about it. One is it really demonstrates the kind of stuff that a lot of radical uh, pedagogy theorists talk about, like Paulo Um, this really, like, decentralized way of just sort of trusting people to come up with the really revolutionary um, ideas through dialogical exchange, and, like, you see that totally demonstrated and performed which is really neat and the other is you get a real window into the kind of like liberating themes that come out from the bible when you read it with the oppressed which i think is amazing because like uh some of the insights that they have are so unique and really creative and like really changed the way that i look at a ton of biblical stories that i heard like a bazillion times so
0: that's pretty neat it is neat something that we talk about on this show a lot is sometimes just like how the the sort of the lived lives of other leftist christians sometimes like it, it feels like they give us permission to also be leftist christians and reading that book is a really good example of how that kind of comes to be true you know when you when when you read some kind of like uh i don't know when you when you hear us when when like when you hear us talk about like liberation theology or talking about communism and christianity it's like fine or whatever but when you like read it from the Read it in the words of, um, you know, the Campesinos in Nicaragua. It's a little bit different, a little bit of a different feel to it, and it's good.
1: Yeah, it is good. The first podcast.
0: <laughs> That's right. Okay, so kind of getting into the the articles that we read this week a little bit, uh, the first one we're going to take a look at is Ernesto Cardinal in the Nicaraguan Revolution by Rudolf J. Siebert, and this piece needs a little bit of contextualization to kind of understand, like, what the heck is even going on in it. So, okay. I'm trying to unpack it the best I can. It's kind of weird. So the point of Siebert's article is to reflect on Ernesto Cardinal's acceptance of this, like, award in Germany. So uh, <laughs> they decided to give Ernesto Cardinal the Peace Prize of the German Publishers Association. Um, and Cardinal shows up and accepts that award. And that's pretty cool. I-, I don't really know much about that prize or that award or, like, why it's relevant. But uh, it is... Not the point. <laughs> the stuff that's said about Cardinal from uh, Siebert's reflection, and um, also the uh, Siebert's kind of recollection of Cardinal's address is kind of the the point uh, behind this whole article. who Cares about the award, but it's a it's a point where Cardinal shows up and starts talking about Nicaragua and Christianity and what all of that means. Um, so yeah, uh, who cares about the award? But uh, the stuff that Cardinal ends up saying about the revolution is really good. Okay, so there's a lot going on. Um, there's a lot going on in this article. Some of it is about Johann Metz and some stuff that he said about um, Cardinal, but we're going to kind of skip that and bracket it. Uh, Johann Metz, uh, as Dean told me a- more about him, he seems cool, but he's not Ernesto Cardinal. Um, so we're <laughs> going to get to Cardinal stuff. We're jumping like midway through the article. So uh, the cliff notes are uh, <laughs> seriously abridged here. Okay, uh, so Siebert... Reflecting on Cardinal says this. At the beginning of his acceptance speech, he recognized the paradox of the situation, a man who defended and praised the armed struggle of his people, receiving the famous peace prize, was extremely significant. He argued the Nicaraguan people searched for peace with their bloody struggles. This peace, which has now been achieved, means more than merely the absence of war. Cardinal thinks of peace described by the old Hebrew prophets, Shalom, a peace which is also justice. Shalom means the peaceful living together, Um, With one another, all harvest their wine in peace. Um, So, this very first piece here, uh, uh, this very first bit here, is interesting because um, a big portion of what Cardinal is going to talk about in this address is um, his position as a Catholic priest, uh, as a faithful Christian, and also his relationship with a violent revolution. So uh, that's right, y'all. We're going to talk about violence here in a second.
1: Can't stop, won't stop.
0: <laughs> There's nothing you can
1: do to stop this. Short of your own violence. <laughs> that might make us stop. I would stop in that instance. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, going on a little bit, yeah, Siebert is kind of reflecting more on this paradox of peace and violence and Teases out a little bit more about that Shalom stuff. So he talks about how, according to uh, Cardinal, um, in the, the Hebrew Bible, people could have had this kind of peace even in the midst of war, he says. It was possible for war to be waged for Shalom. This is also the peace of Jesus, who greeted his disciples with Shalom, peace be with you. But Cardinal reminded his audience, Jesus also said that he came to bring the sword and the fire, and that the nature of fire is to burn. Uh, I think that that is a really fascinating thing. It's something that comes up in a lot of Cardinal's life. Uh, And not only because he participated in the Sandinista Revolution, but because he had so many friends uh, within the kind of global Catholic community by virtue of studying and and wandering around in so many places that uh, those friends were also kind of nervous about his sort of openness to violence as a political solution. Um, So famously, like he had a kind of weird relationship with Daniel Berrigan, who was a famous uh, Jesuit priest in the U.S. who was part of the peace movement, really amazing guy, but a very resolute pacifist. Um, so that was a kind of point of contention we'll talk about more in a minute. Um, and then another was, uh, Thomas Merton. He had a really interesting exchange, uh, for many, many years, though at one point the monastery actually forbidden, uh, Cardinal and, uh, Merton to exchange letters for like several years, which is pretty crazy because of Cardinal's political activities. Um, but in any case, I think that this is a really cool way of thinking about the tension between peace and violence. Because it is both, like, on the one hand, coming from somebody who's theorizing it in a certain way. Like, he's thought a ton about it. But also, it's coming from somebody who has both, who has lived on, like, every side of it. Like, lived on the side where he was the recipient of violence. Lived on the side of uh, when violence was used against that structural violence. And then lastly, lived on the side of the the peace that was established um, after that th- kind of all uh settled down or or leveled out and i think that like i don't know there's there's just a lot to be learned from a, a life that is kind of marked by being in so many different relationships to those uh those different like stages in the struggle
0: yeah for sure well, Siebert goes on to talk more about Cardinal's more, like, nuanced position on violence. And I think it is kind of good to play up this well, – it may not play it up, but, like, recognize this tension that, like, Cardinal is a person who is open to this type of revolutionary violence and that there are people around him who are, you know, Christians who feel kind of, like, weird about that openness to violence. Um, but then uh, Siebert says this bit here, which I appreciate, that I think is a good thing to keep in mind is uh, Christians might be wary of violence or something. So Siebert says, Cardinal insisted it was entirely evil for certain officials in the church to have shamelessly blessed weapons of oppressors in the past, both in South America and elsewhere. Uh, Pius XII blessed the weapons of the Italian fascist army when it set out to conquer Albania, and today churches in Albania are closed. Um, I don't know know about that now, (laughs) but whatever, (laughs) it's 1980. Cardinal Spellman (laughs) blessed the weapons of the unjust Vietnam War and their actions, Pius XII and Cardinal Spellman... Uh, followed a very old tradition of Constantinian Christendom. For Cardinal, it is something completely different when the church blesses the weapons of the oppressed victims who try to defend themselves against their despotic murderers. The blessings of the weapons of the masters is completely different from the blessing of the oppressed victims, since the weapons are so unequal. It's not the same for the church to bless the sword of Goliath and the stone of David. Um, So here we see that uh, that nuance, I think, is really necessary for these types of conversations about violence and Christianity. Um, Violence is not always like uh, is not equal. It's not the same thing. There's a I think there's a part in this in this article where or maybe it's a different one that that I think of. But where Cardinal is reflecting on like um, the uh, Somoza regime dropping napalm uh on mm-hmm. uh you know the Nicaraguan people and saying like listen that's like this is very different than guerrillas fighting against the Somoza regime. Like napalm and like you know AK forty sevens or whatever are wildly different types of uh weapons with wildly different types of motivations and relationships between those things. So um this type of nuance is one that we're good at playing up on this show and look we're doing it again and it's <laughs> it's still good. <laughs>
1: uh yeah. Yeah, I think it is good. It's good not because violence is good, but just because the um like the problems are real and uh, it doesn't do us any good to sort of ignore them. Yeah, um, it's, it's right.
0: Violence is violence is still not good. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm still gonna I'm still gonna ride that line until I die. Um, but uh, it it's also so violence is not good, but it is also a violence to like try to call out all types of violence is being equal or, you know, right. A, a what about of violence? Uh, that's bad. Yeah. Yeah.
1: That's right. Um, well, here's a, a good way of kind of dramatizing this a little bit. So <laughs> I mentioned, uh, Daniel Berrigan earlier and, uh, he's mentioned in the super article in a really interesting way. Uh, so a little bit more background on Berrigan because I do want to establish his like radical credentials cause he's genuinely very cool. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> um, Yeah, he's an amazing person. He um, did all kinds of wild stuff. One of the things he's most famous for is being part of a group called the Cantonsville Nine. His brother and many other people are part of it as well. But they uh, broke into an office and stole a bunch of draft documents and then burned them uh, using homemade napalm and they all uh eventually were tried for it but uh daniel berrigan especially like ran from uh from the federal government for a really long time he was like hiding out in like people's basements like spare rooms and stuff just as like wild jesuit uh occasionally like writing poetry and stuff while he's doing it um so anyway he did a lot more than that but that's kind of one of the big things that he's famous for and um i say that because i think it's important to establish that like the difference between berrigan and cardinal is definitely not a difference of like um oh like some people have sort of like lofty ideals but they've never struggled uh and like other people don't it's like right. both of these guys had super lofty ideals and they both struggled a lot mm-hmm. you know for them um but in any case there is a, a significant difference of principle between them and this is how siebert uh sort of uh sorts it out so he says during the revolution in nicaragua the Jesuit Berrigan wrote an open letter to Cardinal in which he condemned Cardinal's defense of the violent Sandinista movement and struggle. Not even the highest principles, so Berrigan argued, can outweigh the life of one single child. In his acceptance speech, Cardinal answered Berrigan by saying that he agrees completely. The Sandinistas fought for the life of thousands of men and women, of old people and children, who were murdered day after day. The highest principle, even that of radical pacifism, cannot weigh as much as a single one of these children. Uh, I think that is a really amazing thing. I mean, you know, personally, I think that Cardinal is right. <laughs> uh, or at least the way that he puts it here kind of spells out the like real scale of actual material lives that the the conflict is dealing with. Um, but what I think is so important is that like uh, both of these positions are kind of centered around. Uh, the dignity of human beings and uh, the question of violence kind of stems from that uh, in both directions. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I-, I think Cardinal gives a really good rejoinder um, to Berrigan there on that point and just kind of forces us to ask the question of like, um, you know, what do these principles that we hold ethically or as good Christians or whatever really mean when it comes down to the day to day life of most human people? Um, and even when most of those human people can all be sort of uh, understood as like singular worthy individuals or something of that, na- that nature.
0: Yeah, it's a really good uh, response that I think does justice to it. It it does. It does demonstrate, too, that it's not like Cardinal it, Cardinal being open to violence as a means of struggle doesn't mean like, you know, he loves violence or something. But, you know, because he, he says that he agrees with Berrigan in kind of this counterintuitive way. But still, it's like, um, you, you know, you you fight for the people that uh, Berrigan is saying that he cares about. So it makes sense.
1: Yeah, it does. It's good.
0: Um, okay, so moving forward a little bit um, more on violence and death and uh, some kind of wild stuff. Uh, Siebert says, uh, well, Siebert reports Cardinal saying something like this. <laughs> The whole Nicaraguan nation was ready to die, for only, though, total commitment could the nation liberate itself from Somoza's despotism. Many Sandinistas fell in the furious battle, but only through their deaths is Nicaragua free today. The flag of the Sandinistas is black and red. Uh, Sandino, or Augusto Sandino, he's like the leader of the movement, explained that black means death and red the free fatherland. He also once uh, said that black means death and red signifies resurrection. Cardinal seems convinced that the young Sandinistas who gave their blood in the Liberation War did so out of love. They did not die in order to die. They have been resurrected. In other words, liberation in political theology is historical materialism with God and freedom and with immortality. Um, this is actually like a really heavy thing, if you think about it. Um, <laughs> it's it's interesting to think about, how, yeah, the black and the red of the Sandinistas, meaning death and resurrection. Um, but it does, uh, I think... I think just like in the Berrigan quote above, um, or the Berrigan bit above, uh, we, we see here Cardin- Cardinal thinking through the actual like material consequences of war, but also like um, why that war of liberation was actually fought. Uh, not to die, just to die, but also um, to die so like the rest of the country can be resurrected as something different. Um, the last line is really striking, too. The political theology is historical materialism with God. Um, mm-hmm. It's a, a wild thing to say but um but that uh is a way that you can fr- that that's a way that um cardinal thinks about this war of liberation that it is a resurrection kind of moment
1: yeah uh especially that historical materialism with god stuff is uh really interesting it just reminds me a lot of uh uh point that walter benjamin makes in the concept of history essay where he talks about how like um there's if the if the Antichrist wins he says then even the dead won't be safe mm-hmm. um from that kind of end end of history uh and he also talks about having this important kind of memory of the people who have fallen in the labor struggle as almost like a weird communion of saints for the left and I think that this is a really great example of what Benjamin is saying like it's not just theoretical like if the Somoza dictatorship had won all these deaths would have have been not in vain but uh certainly um, you know, they, they would have, uh, not been resurrected in a, in a kind of glorious way well, uh, and, as they were by the Sandinista victory.
0: Yeah. I mean, if Somoza would have won, those names would have been erased from history. I mean, you know, you wouldn't, yeah, yeah. it would have been a different thing. Well, um, yeah, there's another part where, uh, Siebert says this, uh, for many Nicaraguan Christians, the recent history of their country recalls the Easter story of death and resurrection. For them, participation in the revolution meant nothing less than faithfulness to Jesus Christ. Um, so just, I mean, kind of riffing off that uh, historical materialism with God, this is, this is what the revolution meant to them. Um, a rebirth. Um, and it's kind of a messianic moment.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's right. And speaking of that, too, that messianic moment, uh, it's also kind of interesting to think through the kingdom of God and what it means to build that on earth. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a, a way in which you can understand that um, with respect to the Sandinistas. So Siebert draws it out like this He says, uh, at present, Cardinal is not focusing on the possibility of counter revolution, but on the revolution itself and its goal a love of neighbor. Great works of love have been accomplished in the new Nicaragua since the end of the War of Liberation, a year ago at the time of writing this article. Formerly sinful structures have been overthrown by works of love, and what are they? They are the relentless struggle against the inner enemy of ignorance and illiteracy, the conquering of unemployment and inflation, the nationalization of banks and foreign trade, the care of widows and orphans left behind by the War of Liberation, the reform of health care, education in the state, land reform, cultural revolution, and protection of nature. I think that describing this as a, a work of love—it's like all these things are extremely banal, like they're like just day-to-day uh, changes in how people live their day-to-day lives. Uh, but that is like a, a, a historical materialism with God, I think you could put it. Um, you know, this is like one way of realizing what hopefully life would be like in some kind of uh, messianic future. But we don't have to wait that long if we don't want to. I think that's really the, the challenge that the Sandinistas give to the rest of the world is like, what, why wait when we could build it here? Uh, and it's it's a really massive challenge.
0: Yeah, you get the feeling that the way that Cardinal thinks about like revolution is, or or maybe like what that historical materialism with God means is that like it is this sort of like actual struggle for liberation, but also there's uh, a sense in which revolution has a lot to do with like spiritual conversion and not maybe in the Christian sense explicitly. But in the sense of like, you know, you change those really banal things about your life. That's like, you know, a really important thing. You change them through love. You make your life about works of love rather than, um, you know, the accumulation of capital or um, all the other bad stuff in the world. So, um, it, yeah, I, I don't know. Cardinal, it, it seems like the, those banal moments are really important for him.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um. So let's uh, transition slowly to the, uh, the other article, but before we do, uh, we got to talk about that good boy, Fidel Castro, who gets mentioned in this article. Uh, so uh, Siebert says, Fidel Castro recently remarked, apropos of the situation in Nicaragua and El Salvador, that Christians no longer merely dialogue with Marxists, but also participate in practi- practical and effective revolutions. In Nicaragua, the Christian-Marxist dialogue, as analyzed in political liberation theology, has shown one of its first fruits. Political and liberation theology and the Christian Marxist dialogue are to be known by their fruits, that is, by the revolutionary works of love. I think that's a really encouraging thing. I mean, we saw that already in the uh, Fidel and Religion book that we read. We did a whole episode on that where Fidel kind of talks about this a little bit more. Um, But it's an amazing thing to think about the Christian Marxist dialogue not as a like uh, like working out different theoretical differences between these two camps, uh, but characterized by what actually happens in the world as a result of those two camps talking with one another and, and really working together that kind of bearing fruit um you know uh christians will be known by their love or whatever i think is a really uh a really important thing to think about when works of love have material instantiations or material manifestations
0: 2019 bear that fruit
1: bear that fruit 2019
0: (laughs) yeah okay also before i move on i do i want to read the last the last bit of uh siebert's article 'Cause it's good mm-hmm. and it talks about Benjamin again, so you gotta do it. <laughs> uh so yeah, the article ends with this with this line. It's a good one. There are Christians alive again for whom, in Walter Benjamin's words, every second in the future can be a little door through which the Messiah enters. Um it's I think that's a good, that's a, good in, a good way to kind of encapsulate what Cardinal's about though. Um the conversion experience, the material struggle, um, the future is open to uh the messianic in a good way. <laughs>
1: Yeah, that's right. Um, well, I think that's actually a really good way to transition to the art stuff, just because you get that sensibility in what Cardinal is doing uh, with his kind of focus on on the arts. So in addition to being like a, a really cool real-life militant revolutionary, Cardinal is also a poet, like we said earlier, and he's a member of kind of like the artistic community of the world generally, and then obviously specifically in Salantaname. And those two things are really importantly connected. So you can't just say like, well, Cardinal was a a kind of militant. Like one reason that he was was because he was also an artist. And these two things really inform each other, Uh, like in the same way he is an artist because he's a revolutionary. And he's doing all that stuff before the Sandinista Revolution and then afterwards his role in the government is essentially to help the people of Nicaragua learn how to embrace and produce their own culture and to disseminate it amongst themselves without uh, the kind of fear of of the dictatorship and also the uh, sort of bourgeois controls on how culture gets disseminated or curated or um, appropriated and that kind of a thing. And I think it's important to focus on this, uh, not just because it's part of Cardinal's history, but also because it tells us a lot of really important things about, um, you know, what, what the relationship between like utopia and material struggle is like what the relationship between, uh, symbolic victory and real victory is like, and it's a lot more kind of uplifting actually and sort of encouraging than I think a lot of leftists like permit themselves to be, and including myself. Uh, so this other article that we read tries to actually zero in on Solentiname in particular, and ask different questions about like, what did that commune look like and what was happening there? And how did all of these things kind of feed in to each other? Uh, so it's a really, really great and, and sort of rare article. I think that that does a good job balancing all these different interests.
0: Yeah. I think to set the scene a little bit more, we can say that, well, okay. And in, in the past episode we did on the gospel and the soul and Taname, I think like we focused on, well, I mean in the book, what you hear, who, who you hear from are, you know, the campesinos, the farmers. Um, but, uh while they are there and they're they're the people who you know lived on the archipelagos before cardinal probably showed up um what is interesting though is that cardinal like uh he's there with the farmers for sure but like he's there with other revolutionaries who are on the island and other artists that are on the island they they basically start like a you know like a a little christian commune um and they make art and they figure out like poetry and they paint Um. And they do sculptures and stuff, so um this is a, this is like there's a lot of moving parts to soaname that's not just like farmers living on an island. It's not just communists, but it's like kind of both of these uh two pieces like coexisting,
1: yeah, that's right um, so here's like one kind of interesting way that the article tries to explain the situation, so uh it says. Connected through vast networks of revolutionary writers, artists, and intellectuals, the ideologies introduced to the islands by Cardinal and his group led to the formation of novel socio-political categories, impossible to achieve otherwise under an authoritarian gaze, establishing trends that were both specific to the Nicaraguan context and symptomatic of the broader political climate at the time. And I think this is really, like, a good way of encapsulating it, right? There's, it's this network of all kinds of different revolutionaries, mm-hmm. and uh, when they, like, start getting their hands dirty, and, like, when people who have uh, dirty hands by virtue of their actual work are encouraged to make art and, like, start thinking uh, about the Bible um, for themselves and, like, you know, embrace their own perspectives, like, a lot of wild stuff starts happening.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um So all this really interesting revolutionary art gets created. There's, like, sort of an artistic movement that is uh, an artistic school that's, like, sort of uh, unique to this specific place and time called Primitivista. Um, So we can talk about maybe some of that art in a minute, too. Um, But something else that really – something else really interesting that happens that kind of comes out of this time um, when they're together in Solentaname is um, the writing of something that's just called the Nicaraguan Peasants' Mass. Uh, so the Peasants' Mass is a liturgical mass composition that incorporated regional folklore and popular music from throughout Nicaragua, including indigenous languages and oral traditions um so it was uh, first released in nineteen seventy five and then immediately censored by the Somoza government because it was you know uh an act of Christian worship that was uh explicitly subversive uh so uh it it is like actually set to music, but um it's in uh spanish, so Uh, We found an English translation, though, that's pretty neat, Um, something that makes me pretty excited, I think, actually. Um, Should we just read it?
1: Yeah, we can read part of it for sure.
0: Okay. So it starts off like this. I believe in you, comrade, Christ man, Christ worker, victor over death. With your great sacrifice, you made new people for liberation. You are risen. In every arm outstretched to defend the people against the exploitation of rulers, you are alive and present in the hut, in the factory, in the school. I believe in your ceaseless struggle. I believe in your resurrection. Uh, So you can
1: tell why that would want, uh, (laughs) why a dictator would want to censor
0: that. Yeah, no kidding. Um, (laughs) Yeah, it is for sure something that you might want to censor if you were a dictator. Uh, But it is a really cool example of really authentic Christian worship that is infused with this, like, um, uh, like the type of politics that are present at the time. Yeah,
1: you should pitch this at your church. (laughs)
0: <laughs> I can't imagine it would go very well
1: <laughs> you never know to try um so yeah, I mean this is an amazing uh sort of like cultural product that emerged out of this uh this situation um and basically like this is one among uh, you know countless other uh very intriguing um artistic products so essentially like Cardinal helped to usher in like a whole wave of politicized Christian art that directly challenges and sometimes like indirectly challenges the Somoza dictatorship. I mean, just by virtue of existing, it sort of is already challenging uh, that way of doing things. So there's like poetry and music and paintings and other kinds of uh, artistic projects that really flourish throughout Salon even when they're under really, really harsh conditions. So it's like a very poor region. um, People are not exactly like free to move around. They don't have like free floating capital and that sort of thing. Um, and still they're like finding ways to, to kind of pull this out of themselves, um, and articulate their, you know, their hopes and dreams. And then what's fascinating about that is when Cardinal becomes the minister of culture later, he brings with him this idea of a a radically democratized arts culture, Um, that really feels like nobody is beyond artistic redemption so you know former like Somoza uh, like military people even are trained to like write poetry and like work through their stuff uh, in an artistic way right Um, yeah I don't know there's a lot to be said about that but I think like drawing that connection between this kind of pre-revolutionary belief in like the the spirit of of people uh and then coupling that with like an institutionalized way of of making that belief uh permeable throughout a whole society is a really uh intriguing line to draw
0: yeah super intriguing so um one of the pieces that the article we were talking about uh references is by gloria Guevara, um who is a painter Um, and the piece is called, uh, yeah, Christ the Gorilla and it's, uh, I don't know, you might have never seen it, but you should go Google it. Gloria Guevara, Christ the Gorilla. It's a really kind of interesting piece. It's in this like, uh, really specific Primitivista style with these like vibrant colors. Um, like Primitivista, I'm, I'm no like great appreciator of art or understander of art history, but from what I can tell, it uses like a really similar sort of, um, uh form with regards to drawing figures and um and like scenes but it also uses a really similar kind of color palette that is really very interesting and pretty striking but uh christ the gorilla is interesting because it is uh just what it says uh christ on the cross but dressed as a gorilla wearing like jeans and a shirt and the people that are there mourning him are also sort of dressed in the contemporary dress of the day um but yeah it's a, it's an interesting example of of the ways that um the folks in Solaname were really working out these ideas at the time uh in like this the seventies
1: yeah that's right. Um, and it's cool too, because like all that stuff, all that symbolic, um, energy is getting exchanged in really interesting ways. And a lot of it is, uh, like charged by Cardinal. He's definitely, I mean, I don't want to say, I don't want to make like a great man of history kind of thing here. Um, but he's like clearly a, a, driving cultural force in the archipelago. And like at one point, this article talks about this cool book of photographs that centers on Cardinal, And it's described like this. It says, uh, all snapshots and narrative fragments converge in the eponymous figure of Cardinal, the cool, wandering monk, spiritual leader, intellectual, humanist, poet, and artist. Um, You really get the sense that this guy who spent time, like, in Kentucky hanging out with Thomas Merton and, uh, like, was educated in Mexico and uh, became a a really famous poet is also a guy who's just kind of, like, uh, a really attractive personality. Um, it kind of reminds me of, there was this uh, thing going around on Twitter just recently that some like crazy Reaganite uh, Twitter account found of uh, Bernie Sanders apparently giving an interview after he had visited Nicaragua. And he talks about Ernesto Cardinal in it. And it is very funny because he's like, yeah, I don't know, Daniel Ortega, pretty impressive guy. Um, Ernesto Cardenal, man, what a weird dude. He's got really long hair. He's kind of like a hippie. Uh, <laughs> he like says it in a very Bernie Sandersy way um maybe we'll we'll have to find it for this episode or something but uh i think like there's clearly a a kind of um like energy about cardinal himself that just compels people to like think differently and you really get that sense that it lends into all these wild uh wild kinds of movements
0: i love that the strategy for uh the right to discredit Bernie Sanders is to make him out to be more of a socialist. <laughs> 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 I wish, I wish Bernie was still that much of a socialist. Yeah. Um, <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. That's right. I wish he was reading some Ernesto Cardinal right now. <laughs> yeah. It'd be
0: dope. Um, cool. Well, Sontaname is uh, is this article describes it as like this kind of like moment before the revolution where a lot of the, um, I don't know, revolutionary imagination was kind of built up Um with regards to symbolism and with regards to art and just like the ideation behind some of the revolutionary or like what, what the culture, like the revolutionary culture might look like. Um, there's a part of this article that even says that, uh, you know, the uh, revolutionist culture and culture is revolution. And I think if that's the case, then a lot of that revolutionary culture was built in Soltaname. Um, the article does this other kind of thing that's pretty interesting where it paints Soltaname as a type of utopic space. Um, or a, a space where at least like uh, utopia is imagined from and utopia here meaning like the the good kind of place that you want to live, <laughs> like the perfect kind of world. <laughs> um, so the article says this, uh, a return to that moment of contemplative dissent. one might ask whether the presence of utopia confirmed through word and image was indeed necessary to bolster resistance against the inequality and violent abuse of the dictatorial regime. If Solentaname was a sustainable model, then a cultural revolution could conceivably succeed countrywide. While this article does not seek to evaluate either the achievements or the faults of the experiment, it prompts a valuable question, one that applies to the broader Central American context throughout the Cold War era. To what extent is utopia necessary to sustain revolutionary ideas? Um, so this is a really, I think, provocative ending to a really neat article um drawing out this connection, like what like what's the connection between utopia and revolution. And um there's one way, I mean like you could frame this as kind of like a a connection between like idealism and materialism, but I don't think it's even that. Because in it, it, to me this is like a, a uto like a, a very materialist take on understanding utopia. Like there's a spot where they were able to actually experiment with these different ideas. The like mm. commune and Solantaname. And um out of that experience they um, they, you know, had a revolution. Um, but this question is, to what extent is utopia necessary to sustain revolutionary ideas? Is really interesting um, be- because, uh, it... well, okay, I guess I guess my point is that in the contemporary situation of the left and, and the Christian left even uh, more specifically, it, it's hard for us to imagine this utopic space. It's imagined to have, like, we don't really have this kind of same space to even imagine sort of revolutionary activity from, so um, maybe this is uh, one way to think about Solon uh in our own particular struggle at the moment, thinking through the ways like what would, what would how does he how could this utopia inform our like, you know, practice as Christian leftists or just leftists in general? Um, and like, what would it mean for us to revisit this idea of utopia?
1: Yeah, for sure um i like the way you put it just a minute ago too that this is kind of a, a materialist take on utopia because like this is what the material conditions of salentonami produced uh <laughs> i mean ernesto cardinal has a lot of energy so did a lot of other artists or whatever um but i mean all you have to do is read a book like the gospel on salentonami to realize the uh the real kind of um like meat and potatoes this whole story uh comes down to just like letting a bunch of people feel free to interrogate their own situations uh and that's what makes the art so important and fascinating as well like there are a bunch of photographs included in here um and if you go and look up some of the stuff that is mentioned like it's forceful and arresting precisely because it is trying to respond to the material conditions and it's bringing these utopic dreams into that. Uh, So, you know, like the, the bits from the mass that I was reading earlier, um, you know, believing in, in Christ, the comrade who is everywhere, right? Like in the hut, the factory, the school, and this kind of ceaseless struggle, uh, it's a really important putting together of the utopic vision of uh, or even the mystic vision of Christ uh, being everywhere, but being here specifically in a place like Salentaname um or in in other parts of Nicaragua in general and I I think that's like a really important lesson um it's one that is hard for leftists to like wrap their head around sometimes because there can be a little bit I think of like a bias between um materialist and and idealist or utopic uh, visions people kind of are like suspicious of both of those things um from either side but uh what's wild about Solan is this is a, a place where like these things didn't really live in tension. Like they, they worked together and they ended up producing like an actual revolutionary situation and actual revolutionaries, uh, like actual people who were invested. Um, So I guess uh, one way to kind of close this out, uh, just adding on, I guess to that (laughs) that last note is to uh, just highlight again, how important it is that Cardinal has been rehabilitated by Pope Francis. Uh, when you get a sense of the real life that this person has lived uh it is wild to think that this guy is a real life Catholic priest like not just a Catholic guy, not just a theologian or an artist or whatever, but somebody who is technically legally now in the in the church sense trusted to carry out all the duties of of church life and it's too bad that he had to wait till he's 94 to get back to that situation but uh, it is a, a really amazing thing and something that I think should give us hope uh, a little bit. Like if we can, if we can dare to have a little bit of hope, um, it's events like this that are not meaningless. Like uh, it, it isn't irrelevant that at 94 years old, a, a Cardinal had to um, ask for Cardinal's Ernesto Cardinal's blessing. Um, that's a, a really massively important thing. And uh, hopefully we can keep sort of being inspired by the, uh, his priestly ministry and his revolutionary ministry as well.
0: Thanks for listening to the Magnificast. If you like what you heard in this episode, you can support us on Patreon. Patreon.com slash the Magnificast. You can also follow us on Twitter, join our Facebook group, or just write us a letter and say hi. <laughs> <laughs> I you don't you can't really do that. But it would be cool if if you could. Um an e letter. <laughs> yeah thanks to maria armstrong for the intro music thanks to the Logical spoon for the outro music and uh i don't know anything else we should talk about nope i think that's good cool see you next time i don't want to get up for church in the morning church in the morning souls alive heaven come to earth and there won't be no church we'll meet down by the riverside they will swim with all creation never get
1: tired never bored